Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, once a year, maybe twice a year, we like to talk about one of the topics that perhaps doesn't get enough attention from individual investors, and that is the impact of currency and particularly the joy of having your investments priced back to Aussie dollars. What I love about this is there's a lot of people who are very interested in what the Aussie is going to do if they're planning an overseas holiday. We're very, very motivated to get on top of our currencies when we're going somewhere, but when you're investing, whether you're investing in a company on the ASX with offshore revenues or you're investing offshore, it just doesn't get a great deal of attention. But we're fortunate at NAB to have an excellent currency strategist team and Ray Attrell, whom you've heard before, has kindly agreed to join us and share his wisdom. Ray, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Gemma. So, Let's talk about the Aussie. There have been some hairy moments in the last few months. You and I spoke earlier in the year, early, early. Can you tell us a bit about where we find ourselves now? Well, I suppose I'd have to admit to say we find ourselves with a much weaker Australian dollar than we thought we would be at at this time of the year. I was just reminding myself, I think we spoke in mid-March 2023. Um, And um, at that time, we were actually forecasting the Aussie dollar to be you know, well up into the 70s by the end of this year. And, and we actually took a little bit of an axe to our forecast not long after we recorded last time. And, and we've done that on several occasions since. Um, you know, and we found ourselves for the last sort of six months or so trading, or probably the last seven or eight months, trading well south of 70 cents. And we've even, you know, we've been down as low as what, 62.7 US cents per Australian dollar, very much in the sort of lower um, what I say quintile or the lowest sort of 20% of its uh, of its history, of its floating rate history, and uh, which I reminded myself that on the 12th of December this year, it'll be 40 years to the date that the Australian dollar was floated against the US dollar. So if you look at its sort of history of how long it's spent, you know, in each sort of, let's sort of five cent buckets, for example, you know, down in the low 60s is very much at the lower end of the range. And, um, you know, the view that we had you know, certainly earlier in the year, was as we went through the year, we would see, you know, Aussie dollar getting back up sort of much closer to sort of the average that it's traded at in recent years. And and the reason that we've sort of got the forecast wrong, not to put too fine a point on it, I think has really been a US dollar story. And it's been a story about the the extreme resilience of the US economy and certainly the performance of the US economy relative to just about everywhere else in the world. And, you know, from the point of view of the currency market, it's probably Europe and what's been happening with China. Well, we haven't seen, you know, in China, we haven't seen the kind of pickup in growth that uh, that we and many others expected after China came out of its zero COVID strategy towards the end of last year, you know, and Europe has been sort of going from sort of bad to worse and, and been in sort of near recession territory for much of the last sort of few quarters. Um, and so the US has really stood proud. Um, the view that the Fed was going to stop raising interest rates, you know, back in sort of as early as sort of Q2 last year, that view hasn't played out because inflation's been higher than expected and economic growth has been higher than expected. And it's really driven you know, US dollar strength. And, and realistically, the, the weakness that we've seen in the Aussie dollar is just the sort of flip side, if you like, of this sort of undeniable 
US dollar strength. But, um, that said, we think things are in the early stages of starting to turn around. And, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen Aussie dollar perk up from, you know, below 63 cents to, to knocking on the door of 66 cents, which uh, the last iteration of our forecast, which we put out in August, actually pinned Aussie at about that level at the end of the year. So um, with a month to go at the moment, things are sort of playing out as, as we hoped they would. It's so fascinating you said lowest quintile because many of us will remember, not everybody who listens will remember this, the Aussie below 50 US cents. It was a nasty, nasty time. And I think I planned all of my overseas holidays when that was happening. I don't think I was old enough to have any investments, <laughs> but I feel like I was the person who was trying to travel when the Aussie must have been its absolute lowest ebb. Is that right? That's right. Well, I think 48 cents was the lowest that we printed in that last 40 years which was back in, in 2000. Um, there were lots of things going on. That was really the only time that Australia has actually had a recession uh, in the sort of post-war period. Um, it was soon after the GST was uh, introduced um, here, which added some weights to the economy. But we were also then in the flush of the, the first real dot-com boom, you know, occurred in that sort of 1998 to 2000. And, and foreign investors were just so enamoured of you know, the new world, which was America and the whole sort of e-commerce and, you know, first flush of the internet. And Australia was very much seen as, you know, old style, you know, old economy, rocks and props. And uh, it was really being shunned by international investors. But, um, but it was also a period where um, interest rates in Australia were lower than they were in the US, which I think is a, is a topic in itself we should touch on here. But um, so there were some sort of quite unique circumstances that... Uh, uh, that were at play there. I think it's sort of bringing it forward to this year and just how weak we've been. One of the sort of key takeaways that we've sort of come to terms with is that we always talk about the Aussie dollar being a currency that tends to suffer when the world is an unhappy place, what we might call risk sentiment. When risk sentiment is buoyant, um, you know, the global economy is doing well. You know, Australia tends to do well and the currency tends to do well. But when risk is off, the Aussie dollar, I think I've used the term before, seems to behave as what's called the whipping boy. It's the currency that, that investors love to sell when bad things are happening in the world, um, you know, whether it's geopolitical or economic or, or otherwise. And one of the big takeaways for this year is, you know, we can think about risk sentiment in different ways. You can look at the performance of the you know, the S and P five hundred and say, "Wow, it's up, put it up 12 percent year to date." But if you look at the performance of Chinese stocks, for example, or the, the Hong Kong stocks, or emerging markets in general, they've dramatically underperformed relative to so-called developed markets, and the Aussie dollar has really tracked the performance of, let's say, the you know the, the China main stock market or broader Asian emerging market stocks much more closely than it's followed the performance of, say, US stocks or other developed market stocks. So we've sort of learned that the Aussie dollar is almost like an emerging market currency. When emerging markets are, are not doing well, as they haven't been, partly because China's economy has really disappointed coming out of that uh, zero COVID era, um, it seems to explain a lot of that relative weakness that we've seen in the Aussie dollar. You alluded very briefly just then to the rate story, which is a question in itself. So let's go to that question because I do think about this all the time and I remember the first 
comment anyone ever made to me relating to currency and and made the comment oh well if australia ever had lower rates than the uh, than the us our currency would fall through the floor remember trying to process that properly so can you talk us through where rates are now what impact that's having and what you think that might where that might lead us Sure, it's it's having. I mean, it, it is it is having a big impact, and it's one of the reasons that Aussie dollar is trading with a six in front of it rather than a, than a seven. It's trading in the sixties rather than the seventy US cents. And if you look back, say if you go back all the way through history, and particularly sort of going back to that period in the the turn of the millennium when um, Australian interest rates were last were significantly below. Um, US rates, we find that the Aussie dollar was very weak. And where we're at, think about it, the Fed, the US Fed, the central bank has been marching rates up since the middle of well, what, April 2022 was when they embarked their tightening cycle. It is when central banks everywhere suddenly had a, a oops moment when they realised that the high inflation that was a sort of product of the, of the pandemic wasn't maybe wasn't so transitory after all and had a big sort of demand side component to it. You know, the Fed has gone effectively from zero all the way up to five and a quarter to five and a half percent is their official policy rate. The RBA during that period has gone also from, from close to zero or 0.1%, but it stopped about 1% or 100 basis points short of where the Fed has been. And in fact, where many other central banks, particularly in the sort of Anglo-Saxon world, so thinking about New Zealand, Canada, for example, you know, they've all got a, a, a central bank policy rate that has got a five in front of it. And we're sitting here, we've just scraped above 4% in, in the last sort of few months or so. Um, and then from a currency point of view, you really need to sort of extrapolate that out to what's happening with bond yields. So effectively, you know, US 10-year Government bond yields have been trading, you know, as high as five percent um, in the last few months, whereas the Australian equivalent numbers have been, you know, significantly below that, or at least sort of up to half percent below that. And if you look at that sort of chart of, of the difference between U.S. interest rates in, in the sort of the, what we call the longer end of the yield curve, so looking at those bond market yields compared to Australia, when Australia has been rates have been below US rates. Historically, that has always been associated with periods of relative weakness in the Australian dollar. So that's sort of pretty much where we're at at the moment. That gap at the moment is pretty close to zero. So it's not as negative as it was, but um, that's partly because those US bond yields have come down, you know, up almost half a percent in the last couple of months. But, um, but going forward, it's really going to be important whether that difference between U.S. rates and equivalent Australian rates, you know, does move meaningfully in favour of Australia. And there's certainly a scenario where the U.S. central bank is going to be believing, A, that it's done enough to get inflation under control and will, in fact, be cutting interest rates next year. That is currently the NAB view that that process will begin uh, before the end of the first half of this year. But the Reserve Bank of Australia, partly because it hasn't raised rates as, as, as far as other central banks, may well either raise rates further, which again is NAB's call, that there may be another rate hike to come in the early part of next year, but is also going to be far slower to think about cutting interest rates um, because inflation, I think, will be a bit more persistent 
um, next year than that it may be in, in, in the US, for example. Um, so there is a scenario there where US interest rates are coming down, Australian interest rates are sort of steady to higher, and that difference is actually going to shift in favour of Australia at some point. And that's a key variable, if you like, that underpins our forecasts for the Aussie dollar doing a little better over the course of next year than it has over much of this year. That's really fascinating. I'm going to throw you a a question you certainly weren't anticipating <laughs> and you can decline to answer it and I'll talk to one of the other guys in the uh, in the markets team about it, but I was uh, presenting at an event weekend before last and a an attendee asked a really good question when I was talking about rates uh, in the US particularly and they pointed out the level of US government debt, which is at quite extraordinary levels. The charts are incredible and said that, the story going around, and I have seen this from multiple sources, is that the Fed will be forced to cut, not because inflation's necessarily under control, but because the government cannot continue to pay its interest bill with rates at this particular level, which I find an interesting question. And my response was, it's worth noting that the government has multiple ways of reducing its outstanding debt, uh, one of which is to raise taxes, which is obviously not very popular. They can also cut spending, and that tends to be where the kind of political focus is. But I do think the idea that the Fed is going to be forced to cut on that basis is really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Mm, well, I'm not a buyer of the view that the Fed is going to be accommodating you know, the government's fiscal burden and, and the Fed has been nothing but consistent in saying that, you know, the US debt is on a an unsustainable trajectory, but that argument has been voiced for, you know, probably 20 years or so now. Um, and, and the US has never really had an issue in terms of funding that debt, um, partly because it's the fact that the US dollar remains the preeminent reserve currency and there is a you know an underlying strength of demand by foreign investors so yes it is the case that you know servicing the debt becomes a, a bigger and bigger component of overall um, fiscal outlays as they're called in the US but um, you know and at some point foreign investors in particular who do buy the majority of the bonds that the US Treasury is having to issue basically to fund those budget deficits, um, they may go on a buyer strike. Um, and that will actually have the effect of raising bond yields even further because it's a simple, you know, the supply is going up and the demand is going down. Well, guess what? The price of bonds will fall and the implied interest rate uh, on them will go up. But, um, you know, and maybe there will be talk as we go in and particularly as we head into the US elections next year. Um, you know, there are some mumblings that um, a certain candidate to... Uh, to, um, to be president next year, um, you know, might raise the issue of why don't we just default on the debt? So I'm not suggesting that would pass, but, uh, um, you know, it, one way of solving your debt problem is to default on it, isn't it? And we've seen that with, you know, Russia in 1998 and, and haircuts on Greek debt, et cetera. So, um, but ultimately, you know, the level of bond yields ultimately is about what the central bank is doing. And if you say, well, what should a 10-year bond yield be? I will say, well, you tell me what the Fed is going to do with its policy rate for the next 10 years, and that roughly will be where the 10-year bond rate should be. So, um, you know, we can talk about huge amounts of supply, but ultimately it's, it's 
where the central bank is likely to be setting policy on average will be uh, will be important. And you know, it, it doesn't seem to be the case that you know where one country has got a huge amount of, of deficit financing to accomplish relative to another country has a material impact. Certainly not when it comes to the U.S. Again, because of the fact that it does issue. Um, its debt in, in, the, in the global reserve currency. But um, um, the, the idea that the central bank somehow will accommodate um, you know, that funding by cutting interest rates is you know, it's hard to get your head around. That said, you could look at Japan. Japan's debt metrics are far worse than the US. And effectively, the central bank owns something like 50% of the Japanese government debt that's outstanding. So you could argue that they're the central bank is really an arm of government there that is actually accommodating the, um, you know, the, the the fiscal position of, of Japan. So it's not um, it's not out of the question. But um, to the extent that the Fed will retain its independence, um, the idea that they are going to be forced into doing things to accommodate the um, accommodate the government's sort of fiscal position, I think, is uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty remote risk. I would say. That is a far more sophisticated answer than I gave. <laughs> far more sophisticated, but roughly the same answer, which makes me feel much better. Uh, amazing point about Japan, and even more extraordinary that uh, the idea of default is being floated because that would most certainly change things in every way for every well, economy, I suspect. If we want to think about what that might mean for the Aussie dollar in a default situation, I would almost guarantee that the US dollar will be going down, not up in that environment. Although it is it's strange in history when we go, if you go back to 2011, which was the first time that the ratings agencies downgraded the US's credit rating from, from AAA to AA plus, I think it was, if you remember, um, you know, because there was this huge uh, bun fight about raising the debt limit, which is this archaic piece of legislation in the US that says that, you know, Congress has to legislate an increase in the amount of bonds that uh, the government's allowed to issue, for example. The US dollar actually went up rather than went down because it created this sort of risk-off environment. So going back to the Aussie dollar, when, when risk sentiment suffers, the Aussie dollar always goes down. And invariably, the US dollar does well, and US assets do well, or, or you know, defensive assets do well, um, simply, again, because the US is seen to be the sort of preeminent safe haven because it is the world's favoured reserve currency. So strange things can sometimes happen when, you know, the fear of something bad happening in America causes this currency to go up. So um, we always have to be prepared for these eventualities. Uh, the logic is fascinating. <laughs> I find that it, that's quite incredible. I thought you were going to talk about it. It must have been 2010, perhaps, maybe 2009, when the Aussie dollar was 10% uh, higher than the US dollar. And I remember that extremely well because I was in US at the time, shopping up a storm, to be frank, Absolutely. and having a wonderful time. <laughs> I think I was, uh, I was shopping for my uh, for my young children, I think, at the time and trying to buy extra carry bags to, <laughs> to the next 10 years' worth of clothing. But, uh, <laughs> we were quite similar. I still own many of the things that I bought during that era and I will never replace them because they would cost like 12 times as much now, I think. It's what I would say just on that is that, you know, that era where, you know, the Aussie dollar, say 2011 when we did get up there. So, yes, the US dollar actually, you know, after that initial sort of safe haven support, you know, was on the on the downswing. And it was a lot to do with the fact that, the, you know, the Fed was starting to cut interest rates. But there were some unique uh, drivers of the strength of the Aussie dollar. Remember, we were in the midst of that sort of 
post-GFC China economic, some of the biggest fiscal stimulus that I think any major country has ever embarked upon. We had that huge rise in, in commodity prices, and it was really the, the, the extent to which that spawned the great mining investment boom, uh, much of which was funded from overseas money coming into Australia to pay for the construction of mines and to, you know, to pay the construction workers. That, that sort of the flows that were created by that really explained, you know, why Aussie dollar did what it did, which was to go above one-to-one for the US dollar. Yeah, it's a fairly incredible time, but it does allude to what I would love to talk about now, which was that the Aussie dollar went through the roof because of all of that investment coming in and the extraordinary strength. The US dollar was falling for all the reasons you've already outlined, but also, you know, when we were traveling there, you know, they were still deep in the throes of the GFC. Like things were still very, very broken in the US at that point and had really not turned around or it didn't feel like it anyway. Certainly not in San Francisco, which was, uh, you, you know, a dark place to be at that time, despite the fact it spawned all the exciting uh, tech growth that kind of drove the share market for the next 10 years. Can you talk us through, because I do really want to talk about how this relates to investors. As an investor, you've got two major ways that currency impact you when you are purchasing companies. So we'll talk about equities, obviously asset, other asset classes as well. But when you're buying equities, you can buy on the ASX, but you're buying companies sometimes that have very substantial offshore earnings. Uh, the two that our investors, if we're not looking at materials, because obviously that has a bit of an impact as well. Uh, but when you look at a company like CSL, for example, where they actually make most of their money offshore, a company like Macquarie, and then you also have the possibility of actually going and buying equities offshore. So US, UK, Germany, and Hong Kong via NAB trade. There are obviously other ways you can do that as well. We are finding more and more investors buying international at the moment, which I find super interesting. You know, the ASX is pretty pretty flat and boring, but you've already alluded to what's happening on the S&P 500. There are seven companies in particular doing incredible things. And you know that's where our investors are looking for opportunity. But currency has just such an enormous impact because you've got two levers working for you or against you or against each other, depending on what's happening. Can you talk us through that a little bit and then how investors might like to think about it? Hmm. Yeah, well, there, there, there's certainly different angles from it. And there's, there's, there's a bit of a sort of a two-way sort of feedback loop, I would say, both from, you know, the returns that one's getting on a, you know, on an international share are obviously going to be either amplified or reduced, depending on what happens to the currency. So, you know, um, you know, if you're sitting there buying your, you buy your Apple shares, and you think, hey, great, they've gone up 5% and find out that the you know, the Aussie dollar's gone up 5% against the US dollar, all of a sudden, if you've done nothing about the currency risk associated with that, then your returns are actually zero. So you're going to be disappointed by sort of not being cognizant, you know, of the um, of the impact that the currency has had. So it really is, you know, it, it's, it's very important in that respect. And, you know, going back to your sort of CSL example, and, and the same thing obviously would apply to resources companies, um, you know, most of their earnings are coming in US dollars. And what that's really worth to them as, you know, Australian uh, listed companies um, is greatly impacted by the exchange rate at which effectively they're translating those foreign earnings um, back into Australian dollars. So, 
in the case of these companies, which we would call exporters, um, you know, they love the Aussie dollar being as weak as possible. Um, you know, it doesn't help us when we're, we're thinking of going to Rome for our holidays, but it's, uh, you know, in terms of the underlying profitability in Aussie dollar terms of these companies with big export revenue, and uh, the weaker the Australian dollar, the better as far as they're concerned. And, you know, a good example would be, uh, but the, the feedback loop is that the currency itself then has a direct impact on what the, the value of those overseas earnings are translating back into Aussie dollars. So, you know, from my accent, you might detect where I hail from, but it's been a, you know, a consistent observation that when the British pound has been under undue downward pressure, you've often seen the UK or UK stocks or the UK stock market tending to outperform other stock markets for that. And the reason for that is so many of the, uh, the listed companies in the UK have such large international or overseas earnings basis that um, you know a weak pound is simply adding to the sterling value, if you like, of that uh, that overseas earnings stream. So you know it it's you know it, so it works in multiple ways effectively. And um, you know I'm reminded that you know in my very early days of uh, of being a, an economist and market analyst. Uh, to, to Good friends of mine that I, I made at uni days, and one of them went on to be quite a renowned sort of equity analyst or equity journalist. Um, and I was a budding sort of macroeconomist interested in currencies and an annual bet as to which stock market around the world was going to perform best on a sort of calendar year basis. But it had to be translated back into, in that, in that case, the British pound, for example. And, and very often, you know, who won the bet was a function of what had happened to the currency rather than what had happened to the underlying performance of the Hong Kong stock market or the US stock market or the, the UK stock market. But, uh, so the, the, the just sort of, it just sort of illustrated the importance that um, the currency has. But uh, as I say, I also think that, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, what equities you might like to, to acquire, thinking about how exposed they are to, to the overseas market and therefore, you know, how the currency has a direct translation effect back into their underlying earnings in local currency is, uh, you know, can't be underestimated. I love that story. You have, have the edge, <laughs> have the edge with your currency expertise. I'm not, I'm not saying I won every year, but, uh, but I was sort of probably more cognizant of the currency view when, when, when picking the market, if you like, it doesn't mean we got it right all the time. But it was uh, often the, you know, when I won the bet, it was usually because I picked the exchange rate directly. I remember having a similar conversation with uh, some broker friends of mine when I worked sort of more in the financial advice space and I would tell them I was quite happy to have a competition on the equities side so long as everything was priced back to after-tax dollars right? Um, <laughs> because I knew about tax and they didn't. <laughs> they were really proud of 20% upside and I'm like, I've already saved them 30% by moving them into a self-managed super fund and putting them in pension funds. <laughs> I'm way ahead of you guys, way ahead. It, uh, it was quite fun actually. So let's talk about what, uh, and I hate the term retail investors, it's a legislated term which I have to remind myself so it's not, it's not as patronising as it might sound, but for you and I as individuals and all of our NABTRADE clients and anyone listening, you know, if you're investing your own money, right, sometimes, you know, when you just described the impact that currency can have, it feels like there's so many variables and it's so complex, it's a little bit easy to just give up and decide that it's too hard and that I would just invest in a good company and try not to contemplate the currency impact. Are there 
better ways to think about this? Um, I mean, you know, currency forecasting is a very can be a very humiliating experience. So going back to the, you know, what we were saying right at the beginning. I mean, if I go back. 12 months, you know, we thought the Aussie would be trading very comfortably with a, you know, a 70 handle, as we say, basically. So somewhere in the, you know, between 70 and 80 cents. And we've spent most of the last six months between 60 and, and 70 cents. So, you know, it, it, it's easier to sort of criticise currency analysts as saying, well, you know, you're useless, you don't know where it's going, it's a random war. But currencies do trend, okay? So, you know, and I think we're at a bit of an inflection point at the moment, you know, we've had this sort of period of almost unrelenting US dollar strength, which has mirrored itself in Aussie dollar weakness. But it looks like, you know, because the key, although there are multiple drivers, if we're only allowed one club to get around the golf course, if you like, it's and, uh, it's what's happening with, with the Fed and US interest rates and the performance of the US economy. And it does look to us like you know, the US economy is starting to soften after some, you know, undeniable strength in the sort of first three quarters of this year. It looks like the Fed is done. It looks like the US dollar is responding to that sort of signal or belief the US dollar is weakening. And, you know, if that's the, the very beginning of a trend, then it's reasonable to think that, you know, there's quite a lot of upside for the Australian dollar. Now, that immediate, so that immediately, you know, means that when you're, you know, Investors anywhere are thinking about, you know, shares that they might like to buy that are not Australian uh, dollar listed entities, then, you know, our view would be that, you know, there is a risk that if you're not cognizant of that, that currency risk and the Aussie dollar does start to trend higher, um, that's that's going to undermine the returns that Walmart are making purely from the underlying Stock price, or the, or the you know the dividend yield that, uh, that that stocks are producing, for example. So, so I think you still have to you know you can't say well it's a random walk, therefore I don't need to care about it. But it's still going to have those random walks can be you know they go up some pretty steep stairs and they come down some elevators very very quickly, particularly in the case of the Aussie dollar when bad things happen in the world. So, despite the the, the extreme challenge, I guess of accurately predicting, you know both a my, my first boss here at NAB said, Ray, the secret to longevity in this business is don't give them a date and a rate. So, uh, unfortunately, we're condemned to do that. And, and you know, for, for good reasons that certainly our, you know, our, our business customers who are exporters and importers need to be, you know, managing the foreign exchange risk over multiple timeframes. So they need to have a sort of best guess, if you like, um, at where things are, are likely to land. Um so, you know, having some sort of a view, I, I just don't think you can put your head in the sand and say, hey, currency is a random walk, therefore I can ignore them. And, you know, obviously there are, there are ways that one can then, you know, look to be hedging that currency risk, if you like, so that your really exposure is to the, you know, the underlying performance of the, the stock rather than, you know, being subject to the, you know, the vagaries or the volatilities of, of currencies. But um, I guess the essential message is that um, despite the difficulties of knowing where currencies might be in the future, you know, they can't be ignored because you'll end up getting a, you know, a pretty unhappy opening a, a letter in the post that tells you what your stock portfolio is doing. And it's not what you thought it was because, you know, the currency has had such a meaningful impact. I had a conversation with a an investor at a recent event and they made a comment that, uh, there was no, not no value add, but there was no competitive advantage from having an economist at a bank and that we should all share economists. I was telling you this story, Ray, but I'll tell everybody else this story. And and I had to say, 
oh, we literally make money out of lending and borrowing and our view on rates is pretty much the thing that depend, well, that determines how much we make. So having a very good economist who's good at predicting rates versus one who's very poor at it is the biggest competitive advantage I can think of in an organisation like ours. And currency forecasting or strategy is not a nice to have and we don't do this for content, right? You are doing this for clients and helping them make decisions about how to price their offerings, how to think about locking in various things. So I'm very glad you raised the fact that this is for our corporate clients and our institutional clients, that your your job is not giving opinions that have no impact. Oh, <laughs> very cool. real live issues, right? What I would say to that is that, um, you know, because of that difficulty of saying, hey, Aussie dollar is going to be 67 and a half cents in June next year, the chances of getting that, you know, 100% accurate, you have to say are pretty remote, but a lot of it is about risk management and, and sort of being able to, you know, to have a view about how effectively how the world is going to play out. And, you know, going back to the, the quip about economists, I mean, we spend 90% of our time in my team thinking about the rest of the world, not thinking about Australia, because the Aussie dollar is really made overseas. So it's really having a, you know, a really good handle, particularly on what's happening in the US in that respect. Um, the advice that we're giving or where the demand, if you like, from our corporate and institutional customers is, is, Ray, I'm, you know, I'm in the business of exporting, let's say, wine. And I've got a big, you know, I've got a big footprint in, in the UK or America, for example, in, in exporting that, that wine. And I know what my costs are in Australian dollars. And, you know, I know what my revenue streams are going to be in US dollars because I'm pretty much a price taker in a very competitive market. So the exchange rate is hugely important to me. You know, how much profit I'm going to make depends on the currency because I'm going to be, you know, selling my wine at, you know, X US dollars and it's worth, you know, X Australian dollars to me and my costs are Y Australian dollars and you do the maths and says, well, I'm making, you know, I'm making 50 cents a bottle or whatever. Um, but the, so the exchange rate is really important and, and from a risk management point of view, it's about saying, well, what's the worst that could happen if, the, if I'm exporting and the Australian dollar is going to go from 70, 60 cents to 80 cents, for example, I may not have a business because the exchange rate is actually going to kill uh, the profit margins that I have. So, you know, for those sort of uh, clients or, or, you know, or even investors, if they're superannuation funds that are obviously have got a, you know, got close to 50% of their assets uh, actually held overseas, you know, the, the currency risk that they're exposed to is, is a huge part of their, you know, overall return matrix. Um, so, you know, very often it's about saying I need to protect myself against something that's really going to damage my business or really going to damage the returns that I'm getting on my you know, international portfolio, for example. Um, and obviously there are you know, lots of, sort of sophisticated techniques or products that allow them to, uh, you know, to manage that risk. But very often it's about trying to avoid, you know, not expose myself to something that were it to happen, even if it's a 30% risk, if I say that there's a 30% risk that the Aussie dollar is going to go back to parity next year, that's not a forecast, by the way, or a, a probability, then as a businessman, I'm saying, I don't want to be, I can't afford to run that risk. Okay, I need to protect myself against something happening, which means that I'm not actually in the business of making wine and selling it around the world. I'm in the business of exposing myself to foreign exchange risk that could kill my business. So, um, you know, so for that sort of 
end of the market, if you like, that sort of institutional end and, and high end corporate. It, it's really about protecting yourself against bad things happening. Or, you know, if I'm an importer, it's about saying, well, are these current levels of, of the Aussie dollar maybe as good as we're going to get for the next little while? So if I've got to pay for purchases coming out of China, for example, in US dollars, then, you know, tell me, you know, if you think the risk is that Aussie's going to be at better levels in a month's time, I might hang on. But if you think there's a risk that, you know, something bad happens in the world, geopolitical or otherwise, and the Aussie dollar's going to go down five cents in short order, then I need to protect myself against that because I'm going to have to pay that invoice that's coming from my supplier in China or in you know, Italy or whatever it is um, on a certain due date. So it's you know it's really that sort of risk management approach. And and you know I think you can extrapolate that to um, you know to, to retail investing in, in in stocks and shares, thinking that uh, you know what's the risk that you know the, the the higher returns that I expect to get from from investing in a, a U.S. share, for example, or a Hong Kong share. Are going to be wiped out because the currency could move. So being cognizant of that risk uh, and seeing what one could, might do about it, I think, is, is, is a vitally important part of the whole process. You said exactly what I was about to say, which is these things are absolutely true if you are a, an investor like you and I, just a person investing your own money. And NavTrade will be introducing tools in the new year, I don't want to give a specific date because it's always dangerous, like the rates and dates. Uh, but we will be introducing tools that will help investors very much make better decisions about currency. Uh, there are lots of different ways you can do it currently, but uh, sometimes it's nice to just be able to see it where you're making your trades. So keep your eyes peeled. We'll be talking a lot more about currency in the coming few months to kind of help everyone feel more confident with some of that decision-making. But Ray, one of the ways people can get a little bit more informed is to subscribe to your research if they're a NAB customer. How yep. might they go about doing that? I think various ways, effectively. I mean, uh, some of our information, particularly the, the, the morning podcast and, and the daily note that we write are sort of, uh, publicly available, if you like, and there is a, a business research and insights uh, page on the nab.com.au uh, site where, where there is some access there. But um, you know, other than that, if, if they are NAB customers, then um, you know, by contacting us, we can happily subscribe them to to, to various research, including you know, the um, the various foreign exchange research publications that that me and my team are responsible for. And they are marvellous. Ray Attrell from NAB Markets, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening also. If you do want to subscribe and you don't know how to contact Ray, which is fair enough because he probably doesn't want to get inundated, you can just email us, yourwealthatnab.com.au. Give us your feedback. But also if you want to subscribe to some of that research, we can get you hooked up if you're a NAB customer. And as always, we love talking to you. Hope to speak to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.